You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Zoe Griffith. I'm Nora Lesserson. Today's guest is Jennifer Johnson. She's assistant professor in the Department of History at Brown University. Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you. We're happy to have you on today to discuss your new book entitled The Battle for Algeria, Sovereignty, Healthcare, and Humanitarianism. That's out this year from uh, University of Pennsylvania Press. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, it's exciting to be out and we're really excited to talk about this book. It's a, it's a work that studies the period of the Algerian War. Um, but rather than focusing on the battlefield and the violence, the, the themes that are so prominent in the history of not only the Algerian War for Independence uh, from French colonialism, but also in the broader historiography of Algeria, rather, this book takes a look at um, another battlefield of contention, which is uh, medicine and humanitarian aid during the war, specifically both French colonial organization as well as the uh, humanitarian efforts of the FLN in its fight against the French and international humanitarian organizations as well. So as I've already said, the Algerian War is most remembered for protracted fighting between the National Liberation Front, the FLN, uh, and the French colonial government, which lasted almost eight years, actually, between uh, 1954 and 1962. Depending on the source, this resulted in over one million deaths. So this is an extremely high toll war, uh, especially on the Algerian side. Um, Yet, uh, Jennifer, you begin your book the battle for Algeria, with the figure of Ferhat Abbas. Ferhat Abbas is an Algerian nationalist figure um, known more for his uh, uh, diplomatic role, I guess, especially early advocacy of nonviolence. So tell us why you've chosen to approach the war by concentrating on, quote, uh, French and Algerian efforts to engage one another off the physical battlefield. So during the course of my early research for this project, I was struck by just how much the violence was front and center in pretty much every account, and also how much intricacy there was in terms of the political affiliations and the the back and forth in terms of the nationalist leadership, the internal fissures, the um, challenges of negotiating with the French um, in terms of trying to make meaningful gains during the war. And I wanted to find some other avenue to think about this war, which, as Chris mentioned, um, lasted for eight years and has really become sort of a defining moment in the history of decolonization and um, third world solidarity. But it was through medicine and healthcare and humanitarianism that I was able to find sort of a different approach to thinking about what the war actually meant to the Algerian nationalists and how the French were 
sort of interacting or receiving the FLN on this very different battlefield where mm-hmm. they did not hold the upper hand um, on the on the military battlefield. Unquestionably, the French were so far superior um, in terms of their financial capabilities, their technical capabilities, um, the number of mm-hmm. troops that they were able to put up the ground. Um, but the medical and healthcare domain was something that hadn't really been examined and also was not typically thought of as sort of a battlefield in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could explain what you mean by medicine is a battlefield. Of course, medicine is adjacent to modern warfare because of the you know, way in which both civilian and military populations are uh, affected by uh, the fighting, by sometimes scarcity, epidemics that arise from displacements and whatnot. Um, so medicine and war are, in a sense, intertwined in the modern period. But uh, I guess you're arguing that uh, medical activities are in and of themselves a, a sort of way to fight and compete. Yes. Yeah, so while I agree that there's clearly a long history of looking at the relationship between war and medicine or war and humanitarianism, um, and they are inextricably linked, trying to understand it on its own terms as a source of either a way by which people can appeal to their own populations Mm -hmm. where they can provide services and Mm -hmm. therefore sort of garner their own public image or Mm -hmm. withhold care and supplies Mm -hmm. um, as another way of basically creating boundaries to care and services, um, looking at the tactical shifts of where to, to provide um, certain medical facilities or clinics or specific services, just even basic food or shelter mm-hmm. or vaccines, um, that becomes a part of people's daily lives and associations of who's actually providing me with what I need to to survive another day, another yeah. week, another month, and who has that upper hand or who has that authority creates a, an entirely different view of the terrain in terms of how the war is evolving. So typically the colonial state would have been the one who was responsible for um, providing that kind of basic medical care, and they sort of did, um, but not in any sort of systematic, mm. routine way. And if you go back to the colonial period in the late, say, 30s and 40s, there's an awareness on the part of the French colonial administration that they could improve in terms mm-hmm. of expanding healthcare infrastructure, but they certainly didn't do it in a sufficient manner to really reach all populations. So there was a huge part of the population that was not being serviced. And was that a question of of resources or of will or they were overextended or or just kind of lack of access to to rural areas or something? I mean, it's a it's a combination of us of several factors. I mean, historically, when colonial cities are erected, these services are concentrated in urban areas um, where the largest colonial Mm -hmm. um, settler foot traffic Mm -hmm. is. And the rural areas were pretty much routinely neglected in terms of really Mm -hmm. developing any kind of infrastructure. Um, But there is an awareness sort of pre and post World War Two that this when the colonial state becomes challenged by anti-colonial nationalists or early articulations of that, that some of these basic services would be beneficial for Mm -hmm. them to extend to a larger part of the population. 
Um, so there are some major development initiatives yeah. that happen in the 1940s, but it's sort of a, too little too late at that point. Our listeners will be very interested if they're interested in that aspect of it, actually, in a interview we recorded with Miriam Holly Davis about uh, developmentalism in Algeria, both French and sort of international developmentalism going on very late during the colonial period, even during the war, as, as you said, as a strategy of kind of uh, expanding these uh, services in hopes of like retaining possession of Algeria, essentially. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Creighton here with Zoe Griffith and Nora Lesherson talking to Professor Jennifer Johnson about her new book, The Battle for Algeria. To learn more about this book and some of the other relevant readings related to today's subject, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we have a complete bibliography. So, Jennifer, you argue that, quote, both sides mobilized recently redefined notions of welfare and rights to appeal for support from a wide array of sources. So let's start with a discussion of the colonial administration. Tell us about these efforts and what you refer to as, quote, medical pacification. Medical pacification also has a long history within the history of French colonialism. Mm -hmm. And in the 19th century, when they were beginning the process of colonizing Algeria, they used medicine as a way in which to form alliances with or create bonds with local inhabitants. And this was a way in which they could not only collect information about who lives where, how many people are there, how big, how many men, how many women, how many children, just basic demographic information. But it's it endeared the colonized to the French colonial project in broad brushstrokes. And this was a strategy that the French colonial administration reactivates and revisits during the war Mm. in 1954, where they realize that there is this longer history that they can draw upon that essentially shows a coming together through healthcare and medicine. And so why not try to provide these kinds of services to populations that may have been sympathetic to the FLN in hopes that either they could collect, again, more information on FLN combatants, or that they could get a better sense of how the population was sort of shifting or mobilizing or moving during some of these early battles um, in the war. And was that impulse a direct response to these kind of early anti-colonial sentiments in Algeria, or were they, or were the French maybe looking to other um, anti-colonial uh, projects? in other parts of Africa, other parts of the world? Was it specifically a, an Algerian story, or are they also responding outside? I think the larger story of medical pacification, as I call it, is not unique to Algeria, that it has certainly resonances in terms of the colonization process all over, and there's also a long history of missionaries playing a significant role mm-hmm. in this kind of um process of introducing the colonial state Mm -hmm. or the civilizing mission or Christianity to these broader populations. But I don't see it really playing out as much during a war for independence Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. as I think is the case that I'm trying to show for Algeria, that that particular story is somewhat unique, Mm -hmm. but drawing on tread methods 
that the French use throughout Africa. The relationship that the French have to Algeria is such that it is really the crown jewel of Mm. the French Empire, and it was part legally part of France. Mm. And so the idea of letting Algeria fall was really beyond most administrators' comprehension, and that they were going to employ every tactic and and throw every resource to try to preserve it. And I think that's one of the ways in which the efforts and the expense and the extent to which they try to mobilize healthcare units and healthcare um, facilities for the Algerian population in a way that they mm-hmm. never had is unique. You don't see that in, say, Tunisia or mm-hmm. Morocco, where there's not this long pro tracted um, military conflict yeah. where there's a more political or diplomatic solution. There are not these extensive efforts to try to preserve the colony. Um, and this is a very intimate form of contact with the colonial government for communities that are in, maybe in rural settings that aren't really experiencing a strong presence of the French administration, um, you know, even very late in the colonial period. What are some examples of some of the activities that the uh, French medical corps were undertaking during the war. So there's actually some interesting anecdotes about how rural Algerians were meeting a colonial um, officer for the first time, that hmm. they had actually never seen a white p- person or they had never wow. seen a soldier. That's how rural and remote okay. um, some of these people were, but the French colonial administration was trying very hard to access as wide a range of people and cities and and towns throughout Algeria as possible. So in 1955, they implement a system called the Section Administrative Spécialisée, or the Special Administrative Sections. Mm -hmm. And one of the purposes of these sections was to go out into towns and and rural areas and tried to basically reestablish relations with the population. And there was a health sector of these special administrative sections that had um, a doctor, a nurse, sometimes a translator, and Mm -hmm. they would just drive around in mobile trucks, mobile Mm -hmm. units, um, Mm -hmm. dispensing basic medical care. And this worked for a time because I think many people who are in conditions of war were happy to accept any kind of free treatment or food Mm -hmm. or blankets. But it wasn't necessarily changing the ideology of people or the orientation of Mm -hmm. how they perceived the French colonial state. But the French would then write reports about all of the people that they were servicing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They would take photographs of the long lines of Algerians waiting for hours just to be seen by the doctor, mothers holding their babies up to the military physicians. Mm-hmm. So this served several purposes also for the French, that yeah. it allowed them to use this as propaganda, saying, like, we're winning the hearts and minds right. of the people through our sort of devotion and care. Yeah, and the audience for that is, of course, back home in France, where people are very divided about whether France should be fighting this war as the as uh, time goes on, uh, but you, you so you also you, so you mentioned winning the hearts and minds. But what about the surveillance aspect? It's also part of colonial medicine because you know the FLN is deeply embedded in local communities. This is like essentially uh, a guerrilla struggle in that sense. Was the French uh, medical administration also sort of? intricately involved in uh, carrying out surveillance of, of fighters and 
finding sympathizers in these types of things? Well, in part, when they would go to these areas where people mm-hmm. would, or at least the pictures depict them being swarmed by the community, that would also be an opportunity for the physicians or the nurses or the, tran- the, the medical assistants who served as translators mm-hmm. frequently to get a little bit more information about who's in that town, mm-hmm. who's at that stop. Do they come with their brothers, their husbands, mm-hmm. their sons? Are, mm-hmm. Is it predominantly women and older people? Um, but this was another way, harking back to sort of the 19th century campaigns, to collect that demographic yeah. data of who actually lives where. And if there was a significant enclave of men, then that might be an indication ah. that mm. this is a FLN stronghold. But if they're missing, then maybe it's not something that the military needs to be overly concerned about. So it, those medical campaigns are operating on two, two paths simultaneously. And finally, if I might follow up, what is the relationship to the resettlement camps, the recruitment camps that they call them during the war? I mean, this is, these are huge efforts to resettle like hundreds of thousands of people, I guess, maybe even millions. I can't remember. We had an earlier episode on it with Dorote Kelu. Um, but so they, they, they take villages and move them into these new villages, which are essentially prison camps. I mean, they have watchtowers and all the makings of it. Uh, is that also a way of... Um, making the people accessible to the medical uh, teams? Are they, you know, what is sort of the logistical? Yeah, I wouldn't say that the resettlement was a way to provide more aid no, <laughs> or, or like more not. medicine or make it easier for them to provide services yeah. to the people. But it was absolutely a tactic of war to try to better manage the physical territory. So you would have French military officers who would, by force or very with very strong tactics, remove entire populations to areas that were visibly under surveillance, Mm -hmm. um, or as you said, with barbed wire or contained in some way. And then in some cases, they would burn the old village, but it was a way of sort of ferreting out the FLN and their soldiers to try to make sure that they couldn't survive in any environment Mm -hmm. um, and to weed them out, essentially. And that this resettlement uh, idea was really a way to clear the land and then survey the Mm, people. Exactly. Welcome back. Chris Grayton with Zoe Griffith and Nora Lesserson talking to Professor Jennifer Johnson about her new book, The Battle for Algeria. Uh, today's episode is part of our ongoing series on the history of North Africa, uh, curated by Graham Cornwell, entitled Tajin. We recommend for our listeners who are interested in that series, we got a lot more episodes, not just on the history of Algeria, but on the broader history of North Africa. So Jennifer, we've been talking about French colonial medicine during the war and how it was used both as a tactic of winning the hearts and minds and and the familiar formulation and also surveilling the population. Uh, And how in the meanwhile, as as, uh, France is laying claim to the physical uh, terrain of uh, 
the Algerian countryside, which includes both villages and, I guess, the bodies of people who are being tested and treated for medicine, they're ferreting out uh, FLN fighters and trying to create an environment in which they cannot last, essentially. Uh, and so I think that naturally leads into what is perhaps uh, the most compelling section of the Battle for Algeria, your new work, which is the section that deals with uh, Algerian public health efforts uh, by the FLN and I guess maybe other groups as well. Um, and these, this section kind of gives us a, a rare glimpse into the voices of Algerians during the war, how they engaged with their agency, um, sort of reaction to um, French discourses and French practices of governance and pacification. So let's, let's get right into it. What role did medicine play in the independence struggle? Well, I think it played a big role. I would <laughs> hope um, that my book is concentrating on trying to show not only the agency, as you described, but also the, the real creativity that the Algerian nationalists employ to try to use a really broad tapestry mm. of um, international concepts about welfare and rights, but also taking some of the exact same strategies and logic that the French are using and saying, well, we are equally capable of playing at that same game. And as early as 1955, um, there are efforts by some of the Algerian nationalists to try to formulate some kind of coherent group of either physicians or nurses or medical assistants. They realize very quickly that there's going to be this large discrepancy in terms of their fighters and of their supplies. And so they're going to have to mobilize in a way that requires a fair amount of creative thinking mm -hmm. um, because they're going to be so outmatched in pretty much every arena. And if we think back to sort of the colonial education structure, there actually weren't a, a large number of Algerian physicians and nurses who would have been able to really helm a broad public health infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So in 1956, there is a student strike in which um, the FLN calls on students to leave their classrooms and to essentially abandon their studies and to come back to Algeria if they're abroad or to leave the university in Algeria and to pool their sort of intellectual capital in a way that will benefit the Algerian nationalist mm. effort. So there's about a two-year process in which the FLN is trying to, I think, formulate a strategy that they can get off of the ground. And mm -hmm. really, with the student strike in the spring of 1956, this is sort of a turning point where you do start to see more concrete efforts of the FLN to reach the population mm -hmm. through medical care. So this is one year after the special administrative sections, the, the French efforts, were mobilized and were active mm -hmm. in the field. So now you see one year later sort of a dual um, campaign emerge on the side mm -hmm. of the Algerians. And of course there's the, the impetus to uh, win the hearts and minds of the people here as well, right? To to gain um, support for the anti-colonial struggle, but there's also in in adopt in sort of trying to expand the Algerian um, medical apparatus, this idea that they will dis displace uh, the French role and actually step in where there's an incredible amount of need. I mean, we can't underestimate or underemphasize the extent of the civilian toll 
of the war uh, on the population of Algeria as a whole. Based on what you've gleaned from the sources, take us on a trip with one of these uh, makeshift uh, Algerian medical teams that's, that's going out and, and engaging with the population during the war. So there were limited numbers of trucks or um, ambulances that they could access. And so sometimes they would drive around to villages to meet with people. And similarly to the French, they would explain that they had swarms of people coming to meet them and that they would hail them as they arrived saying like you are essentially our saviors or you're going to win over France or if you see our arms you see our physicians you see our nation literally developing before us and so this was a way in which the um according to the nationalists the population was expressing its support mm -hmm. and expressing its appreciation for the nationalist effort but in all actuality when you read the memoirs of several of the FLN um, combatants or some of the physicians they explained that there was so little in terms of the the actual supplies that they mm -hmm. could provide to people and that they would make um, casts out of eggs and water or that they would take trees or pieces of wood as flanks for mm -hmm. a cask. So they're operating with the most minimal <laughs> of products. Um, and so I think that there's a certain retelling in, in the memoirs of how the Algerian nationalists wanted their efforts to come across as versus the reality. There's a tension there. Mm -hmm. But Undoubtedly, there was an organized effort by the nationalists to try to reach the population and to compete, perhaps not on an equal scale, but at least project equality um, with what the French were doing. And sometimes um, there would be French medical supplies that the Algerians would steal uh -huh. from different military bases or camps, um, and that would be a way in which they could provide mm -hmm services to the Algerian population. Another way in which the Algerians developed their health services apparatus during the war was that in 1957, they started the Algerian Red Crescent. Yeah. And this organization, I think, is really what galvanizes their domestic efforts and also really their international efforts in terms of getting those critical supplies that they could not access or didn't have at their um, disposal within Algeria. So there's going to be a huge influx after 1957 of not only financial support, but but practical material support of, say, milk, powdered milk or um, blankets for children yeah. or clothing to survive a winter or um, vaccines or pills that arrive in shipments from either international organizations or from other Red Crescents or National Society's Red Crosses around the world. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite um, parts of that section of the book is you talk about a kind of knowledge base among some of the members of the FLN who had this language of humanitarian relief and of kind of uh, international discourse that they were they were operating on. It was another maybe aspect of a, of a propaganda campaign, but that they were able to translate that for an Algerian context. And I was kind of wondering that idea of translation, were there, are you talking even about specific terms or was it more of a 
working on a particular with particular resources with particular populations this notion of translation what did it look like so when i use the sort of expression or the the word translation i'm thinking more about how these larger international concepts of humanitarianism or human rights are sort of floating around in the political sphere mm-hmm. for anyone to really access them So what the Algerians do is they try to figure out a way in which to make that language relevant for their particular case. So it's not a literal means of translation Mm -hmm. where they're going to explain rights and humanitarianism to the local populations. It's more that they're trying to, it's almost the reverse process, where they're trying to explain the Algerian cause and translate their struggle into terms that a larger international public would understand. So the language of suffering, the language of humanity, the language of um women and children, refugees, they sort of seize on some of these concepts and then use those to try to mobilize support abroad. How could you have this resettlement camp where children are living in squalor and horrible unhygienic conditions? Surely you would like to donate to our cause. And in the process of doing Um, In the process of trying to explain the Algerian plight, they're able to not only acquire real resources, but they're able to then reshape their own image abroad by casting themselves as humanitarians, which is in direct contrast to how the French are portraying them during this war, which is as terrorists and bandits and sort of violent thugs. And how could you possibly be all of those negative things when you have statesmen Mm -hmm. like Ferrat Abbas who are going out into the diplomatic arena or you have the Algerian Red Crescent leadership explaining all of their innovative, creative, and fundamentally humanitarian efforts to improve their population's plight. And this is one of the things that the book does really well is show how savvy the leadership of these particular aspects uh, of the anti-colonial movement are. I mean, when we think of anti-colonial struggles, they're guerrilla, grassroots, on-the-ground type of things. But as as you point out in your book, there's a sophisticated understanding of law and of the discourses of humanitarianism uh, and human rights and all these things that are emerging at the time. Uh, that is really mobilized uh, by the other end of the resistance, I guess. And it's interesting because it's not one coherent linear story or strategy of how Mm -hmm. these major concepts or terms are being employed by the Algerians. However, there is an acute awareness that these are important and that these will resonate. And so it's almost as though they're collecting as many different options as possible over the course of the war to see what will stick and to see what will be most effective. And I find that process fascinating because they're evolving. The nationalist sort of logic is evolving as the war goes on, as they test out new methods for either material aid or or diplomatic progress.
مازال هاي مازال محبوب القلب لاشتاه ولهذا المجال مازال هاي مازال ما نسمح شيلو يصير عليها القتال قدر سين القاه يا حبابي وقتاش نراه قلبي ما ينسى خاطري ما يصبر مسكين ذاك اللي نهوى في المحاين ما زلت معاه كان الله داين تهاو يرجع لي في الحين ما زال حي ما زال محبوب القلب لا شطول هذا الميزان مازال حي مازال ما نسمح شي لو يصير عليها القتال Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast once again. Chris Grayton with Zoe Griffith and Nora Lesterson talking to Jennifer Johnson about her new book, The Battle for Algeria. Uh, the song you just heard is a recording of the Algerian Jewish artist Lili Labasi of the song Mazal Hay Mazal. She's Still Alive, I guess, is a good translation of the title. Uh, it comes to us from the website Excavated Shellac, which um, we, who we sometimes feature in our podcast, really a treasure trove of digitized uh, records from the shellac and vinyl era um, on the internet totally accessible to anyone and actually has good stories about um, some of the songs, not only, of course, from North Africa and uh, the Middle East, but really throughout the world. I recommend our, listener, our listeners check out that site by visiting our website, adminhistorypodcast.com, for the link. So, Jennifer, we've been talking about how medicine is sort of a field of contention uh, between the French colonial administration uh, and the Algerian resistance. Uh, but as you also note in your book, particularly from the nationalist side, the Algerian nationalist side, there was a, a conscious effort at times to sort of send the message to the world that the war that was going on against the French in Algeria was a transnational conflict, something with international import, right? And so maybe as sort of the last question for today's conversation, I want to ask about the role of international humanitarian organizations. You've already talked about the foundation of the Algerian Red Crescent, but how are international humanitarian and political organizations um, part of this equation in the story you're trying to tell? The international component and the international institutions are hugely important for the Algerians' efforts because I think without their additional support that they lent the nationalist cause, the result may have looked different um, mm. or, or taken a, a different turn. Um, and the reason I say that is because there was such a pressure on later on in the war on de Gaulle to have some kind of negotiated solution. Um, and without having the pressure of the UN, without having other international organizations like the Red Cross in Geneva sort of pushing and applying additional pressure to produce a result, I'm not sure that there would have been the same kind of motivation on behalf of the French to reach a negotiated settlement at the time that they did in 1962. So part of what I mean by that is that the international organizations were funneling many hmm. different voices 
at that time, um, and they were impacting or sort of shaping and influencing international relations without being an actual player. So, for example, in 1960, the Red Cross, which had been conducting missions in Algeria over the course of the war um, against the contract of the Red Cross, they ended up publishing the report of what they had seen and witnessed in Algeria, sort of at the height of the fighting. And there's some controversy over who sort of leaked the report and how it ended up on the front pages of Le Monde in January of 1960. But in any event, the result was a public outcry, both in France and around the world, at the conditions that were described in this report, at the kind of horrific um, day-to-day struggles of the Algerian people. And this was a way that exposed the French in a very concrete way Mm -hmm. um, that they could not finagle out of, that they could not say this is a public... they could not say that this is a private affair, that this is none of your business, or we have this all under... (laughs) This is a domestic concern. These are the events that, you know, are under French jurisdiction. This was laid bare on the front pages of the most popular and well-circulated French newspaper, and there was a necessity for the French to Mm -hmm. respond in a way that they had not been able to do. So it's that kind of subtle pressure or not even subtle, but that kind of pressure that impacts the course of the war. Right. So normally we see that the Red Cross and the Red Crescent work together, but in this instance, was this as true? Was this true in practice in Algeria? There was a French Red Cross Mm -hmm. that was operational in Algeria, and per the rules and regulations of the International Committee for the Red Cross, Countries are only allowed to have one national Either society. a Red Cross or a Red Crescent. Right. It, it can be either. Um, but you're only allowed one national society. Yeah. And so because the French Red Cross was operating on the ground in Algeria and had been throughout the colonial period, the Algerian Red Crescent technically was not allowed to be an official national society. Mm-hmm. They knew this. They didn't care. (laughs) They formed their group anyway. um, And they started writing letters on Algerian Red Crescent letterhead and sending it all Mm. around to national societies around the world and to the Red Cross in Geneva, requesting meetings, requesting support, requesting aid. And there's some very interesting correspondence for example the british red cross gets a letter from the algerian red crescent and they're very confused about what this organization is who authorized it wasn't there already a french Mm -hmm. red cross should they be sending money we're not sure they send that correspondence to geneva geneva says yes we know we know that this organization is Operating, We haven't officially recognized it, but it put the Red Cross in a very interesting position because their entire mission and, and, and outlook is to provide humanitarian aid in a neutral, apolitical situation. So getting involved in the yeah. politics of two different national societies is sort of beyond their scope. Um, and by having meetings with Algerian Red Crescent representatives, that was, again, sort of a de facto recognition, but without actually saying, we think you are a legitimate organization. They can't turn away someone saying, we're in the middle of a war, and we've got people Mm. dying, and we need 
assistance immediately. So that was another way in which the Algerians sort of creatively sidestepped what was legally permissible or even diplomatically Mm -hmm. accessible to actually obtain aid and to increase international awareness and recognition for what they were doing. And this is one of the aspects of the global historiography of humanitarianism, even a lot of the best work that is often ignored, which is how local uh, humanitarian uh, initiatives uh, sort of change the practices and discourses of global humanitarian organizations. Often humanitarianism is presented as sort of this like Western um, intervention in a way into uh, different parts of the colonial world, of course, the Middle East during World War One, and What's often ignored is, and what you've shown here, is that uh, actually local efforts by Algerians reshaped, um, you know, conceptions uh, of of humanitarianism. They showed agency of Algerians in the struggle and ultimately helped bolster the claims uh, for an independence movement. Yes. (laughs) Well, on that note, uh, we've had a great conversation. There's still more to talk about, but I think we'll leave it here in terms of time. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a real treat to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining in, Zoe and Nora. Always nice to have you here. Anytime. want to remind our listeners to check out the book, The Battle for Algeria, Sovereignty, Healthcare, and Humanitarianism from University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, Check that out on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. There's a link where you can buy it or simply locate it. Um, We also have a bibliography to read more about today's topic, some of the other work that has either been alluded to, evoked, or is relevant uh, to this podcast. Uh, And I want to remind you to also check out our Facebook page, where we've got over 25,000 Facebook fans uh, sharing our latest content and commenting on whatever their heart desires. That's all for this episode of Ottoman History Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Join us next time, and until then, take care.